If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, the Alberta government hinting at a different direction on supervised consumption sites and harm reduction. We'll talk about the pros and the cons of this approach. Also, Alberta doctors at odds with the Alberta government on how to proceed with changes to pay structure. We'll hear from one doctor about what those concerns are and how we can get things back on track. Plus, the Supreme Court of Canada slamming the door on one last legal challenge to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. we take a look at where pipeline opponents go from here. This study has been eye-opening for us in taking a look at what's happening in our communities and the complete disorder, particularly in the surrounding areas around these supervised consumption sites. It's unacceptable. Well, there you go. Unacceptable. That's uh, Justice Minister Doug Schweitzer talking about this report today, a report that was commissioned specifically to look at social impacts of supervised consumption sites in Alberta. And uh, finds that there certainly are some issues, increased needle debris, growing risk to public safety in some surrounding neighborhoods. Even suggesting with regard to the site in Lethbridge, uh, the nonprofit agencies that oversees the the, uh, supervised consumption site there, that there have been financial irregularities. So that's something specifically that is, is going to be followed up on. But... Where we go next is is unclear. The government certainly seems to be setting the stage for a real change in direction. But if we're going to do so, are we also incorporating the benefits of a harm reduction approach? This was not a report. In fact, they very specifically said today that whatever benefits come with a harm reduction approach, that was outside the scope of this report. In other words, it's not about looking at the pros and cons of harm reduction. It's more specifically, let's look at the cons and how significant they are. So are we getting a, a, a balanced picture of what's going on here? And where, where does this all go from here? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program, Rebecca haynes Sam, Assistant Professor, Community Health Sciences, also with the O'Brien Institute for Public Health at the Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary. Rebecca, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Um, your your overall thoughts here, first of all, just in terms of what, what you suspect the government is up to and, and how much stock we should put in this report. Yeah, I think we knew from the outset what they were up to when we saw the announcement of this panel and report and the whole process for the study and, and the members of the panel. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's not looking at the pros and cons, it's really looking at the cons. And I just want to remind folks that, you know, the socioeconomic impacts of harm reduction, that's really outside of the scope of the things that we measure in terms of how it improves uh, public health and people's well-being. So it's almost as if they've imposed a new metric uh, and then set people up to fail on that metric. 
I mean, at the same time, I suppose we, we can't ignore the impact on communities. And I think we do need to have a conversation about what's happening in these communities, how much of it is attributable to, to the presence of a, a supervised consumption site, what else is going on related to, uh, you know, this, this um, addiction situation. So how do we go about answering that question? Yeah, I think that is also really important because uh, time and again, we've heard that people want to be heard. However, when I look at the report and I look at the summary, uh, it's almost as if they've pulled out the worst possible anecdotes uh, to support their idea that these sites are causing harm to people without actual evidence of those harms. So, I mean, it's easy to say, I'm afraid walking down the street because I see needles, but, but do we have a measure that, you know, there's more needles than there was before and that people have, have been harmed by that. When you look at those summaries in the report, those anecdotes are really profiled and bold. But then when you look at the data in the back end of the report, you see 57% of people in Calgary and 80% of people in Edmonton say, yes, we do actually support SCS in our community. And that wasn't highlighted. So I I fully embrace communities being heard and having more public dialogue. uh, But I don't think that that was what was presented today. What do you say to those individuals? So, are certainly, I think there are people who are not opposed to this approach, uh, but but do maybe live or work near these these facilities and have some concern about the impact. Uh, I, I do think people are are looking for some some reassurance about these issues or that they're going to be addressed. So how do you think we should handle that? Well, I think after today, um, you know, part of it was to send a message that uh, perhaps the sites are mismanaged, perhaps the sites are misrepresenting what they're doing, uh, and that people have a right to be fearful and skeptical. Skeptical, and one of the um, one of the things that people frequently say is, you know, um, you know, why why is my money being spent on this intervention for substance users when we should be spending money on recovery? So what was presented today fits really ni- nicely into that narrative. Um, you know, I think this is an ugly and scary and hard issue for many of us. Uh, homelessness, poverty, mental illness, and addiction. These are difficult conversations with complex policy solutions. SES is part of that picture. Um, and it's one part of the intervention, and we should absolutely be having conversations about bigger uh, policy solutions to this problem. Right. And I, I think at the same time, too, we can't ignore what was happening before these sites opened, because it's not as though these sites have created uh, opioid use. Uh, obviously, these, these sites did not cause the addiction crisis. And so we had increasing use. We had uh, over. Um, overdose deaths were on the rise, in fact, before these sites opened. So it it didn't create these problems, I I think is important to remember. No, it didn't create these problems. And in fact, when we had the Valuing Mental Health Report a few years ago, it showed of all provinces, Alberta has invested the least in mental health and addictions. So we do have that issue, and it it is being addressed by investing uh, in a range of treatment services. However, Beyond an addiction crisis, we have a drug poisoning crisis, and that's the real new thing that emerged and and why SCS and public distribution of naloxone and scaling up opioid agonist treatments were rapidly rolled out um, in the past four or five years uh, because after Vancouver, you know, Calgary has the highest rate of, of fentanyl poisoning deaths by overdose. 
So we really need to respond immediately on the ground. However, you know, now now there's a narrative that, well, it's not an opioid issue, it's a meth issue. But, but folks who use drugs and street-involved folks are, are typically polysubstance users, right? So this is not new information, but now we're seeing this idea that maybe these sites aren't valuable because the real problem is meth, and I, I think that's also short-sighted. But further to that, I, I mean, obviously these sites were... were in response to this opioid crisis and, and being able to reverse uh, an opioid overdose. Um, so the, you know, the point that was raised today at this uh, event was that, you know, the, the increased use of meth has, has kind of thrown that in, into flux, though. But, I mean, are, are these sites still well-equipped to, to deal with, with meth use, too? How, how are they balancing that? I think so. I think you have to also have to remember that, um, you know, the latest report on the on overdose death shows that um, fentanyl is implicated uh, in a, in like forty percent of deaths involve fentanyl and methamphetamine. So people are co-using these substances. So I think the idea that it's only to reverse opioid overdoses and that that fentanyl is never implicated in in meth use and meth overdoses. You know, we also have to recognize people are using both substances, but often unknowingly because the supply is just very unregulated and unstable. And this this is what happens in drug markets. There's still a place for SES to uh, have people come use the substance and have a compassionate uh, a place where they can get care that they need and they won't be turned away. It's interesting because you mentioned Edmonton and the, the levels of public support for uh, supervised consumption sites are much higher. Some of the associated issues seem to be much less of an issue in Edmonton, and they've taken a different approach in having multiple sites. And, and that's the point that's been raised in all of this, that uh, do, do we have issues by having one site where, where this is all concentrated? Might it make sense to have this a little more spread out as Edmonton does? Where, where do you come down on that? Yeah, I mean, the point was always to have a mobile site in Calgary, and, and the plans for that were in the works, and the community consultations were underway. And then there was incredible resistance to where this mobile site uh, might be parked and an idea that, well, maybe we'll push it out into an industrial area. You know, there's resistance from from agencies. There's uh, some some resistance in finding the right spot uh, with the city, city bylaws. So very complex. We need more sites to kind of, uh, disperse this, but also the pushback in Edmonton sometimes has been, well, we, we have three sites and they're all downtown, but keeping in mind that one is a hospital-based site uh, for inpatients because we know that people continue to use substances and are at risk of leaving care when they're in hospital, right? Uh, but absolutely, I, I would be in support of, of a site that uh, is outside of the Schumer to support people. I mean, at the same time, uh, the Sheldon Schumer Center has uh, a number of, of addiction-related services. I mean, there, there was some logic to having this site there because people can access some of these other services at, at the Schumer Center. Yeah, very much so. So there's that suite of other services where people can uh, become attached to other other types of services and other types of treatment and, and physician expertise and, and that, you know, that warm handoff from SCS uh, that can happen. Uh, I think uh, if, at the same time, like a mobile site is very low barrier if we use that term in harm reduction, so it can meet, meet those people that wouldn't set foot in a building uh, and can go to where the need is. Uh, so both types of services are really needed in terms of the big picture question about whether this approach works and and what the implications are i mean you know certainly the fact that that we've reversed many many overdoses that that's that's one to consider the fact that overall 
we saw that that trend where opioid deaths were on the rise, that, that started to change last year. So it's making a, a difference in that sense. If we're going to really take a meaningful look at the, both the pros and cons of this approach, what, what do we need to be looking at that this report doesn't? Yeah, well, we have we have an incomplete picture of the public health evidence uh, of the science from harm reduction, and we have an incomplete panel with no one, um, you know, in my community of experts who is a, a frontline physician or an academic researcher or someone working in harm reduction represented. So we really don't have that expert input uh, from the folks who sort of live and breathe this research and practice every day. I think the broader question that we need to ask in terms of pros and cons is, you know, do we want to support only interventions that focus on abstinence? Uh, You know, there's this sense that, oh, the the previous government invested too much in harm reduction. Now we're just fleshing out the continuum of care. But at the same time, there's a lot of inflammatory language about people who are addicts, about people who, you know, we're enabling them. We're we're providing palliative care when we uh, provide harm reduction. And so I think there's a bigger uh, question about what type of service do we value? Do we value all points of the continuum or are we just moving to support people who can be abstinent and people who are going to go into recovery? Right, and, and certainly being able to you know, prevent overdose deaths is, is crucial in, in ensuring that someone can get on, on the track to, to recovery. Uh, and and you know, beating this kind of addiction is very difficult. But as you said earlier, we, we, we don't have enough in terms of those supports, do we? Yeah, I think also we need to look further upstream. So I work in public health, right? So we're always focused on those inequities. So when we are in a situation where there's, um, you know, growing social inequity, where there's cutbacks uh, in many ways, we see this downstream. And so if we're not going to be responding to homelessness and poverty and trauma, we're always going to have this kind of revolving door of folks who are marginalized and disenfranchised and need different types of supports. So I would say in addition to continuing to fund harm reduction, we also need to fund those low-barrier, trauma-informed, community-based solutions uh, so that people... um so people have the supports they need outside of, of addiction treatment because that's just part of the piece of what people need to to live more stable lives. All right, well, I guess we'll see where this all goes from here. I think still some questions about what the government's going to change about all of this, and I guess we'll learn in due course, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. All right, that's uh, Rebecca Haynes-Saw, Assistant Professor of the Community Health Sciences, uh, part of the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary, as well part of the O'Brien Institute for Public Health, talking about the aspect to all of this that the report didn't look at. But I think she raises an interesting point. I mean, do, do we care about these people or not? The people that we're trying to save. Because when the government talks about, well, we need more uh, beds, more available addiction treatment, Sure, okay. So we are interested in helping them. But when we talk about harm reduction as a way of trying to save lives, there there seems to be a sense that, well, who cares? All right, so we've been hearing a lot about this this situation between uh, the Alberta government and doctors. Uh, and it all stems from the uh, Alberta government's insistence that the way and how much doctors are paid changes and and certainly we, we've seen this argument from government in other respects 
and other departments, right? That, that essentially uh, we're trying to make tough fiscal decisions and, and everybody's got to do their part. But certainly there's frustration from doctors on how the Alberta government has gone about this, including, of course, uh, tearing up the agreement uh, between the Alberta government and doctors altogether. So just kind of creating a lot of uncertainty and maybe some animosity as well. We've been hearing recently from a number of doctors who have been speaking out, uh, sending letters to the government. There's a petition that's been going around. We've seen doctors rallying. They're, they're certainly concerned about the impact of all of this. And, and the government is being warned that this could have implications that would have a negative impact on health care. Uh, with doctors either not coming to Alberta in the first place or leaving the province altogether. And we're hearing anecdotally that maybe some of that is already happening. Now, the Alberta government has insisted that, that there's no reason for doctors to do that. Uh, they'll still be the highest paid in the country. There's lower taxes in Alberta. Why would anybody leave? But if doctors feel as though they're getting jerked around or that there's uncertainty about their situation or their pay structure, uh, they're going to make the, the decisions that are best for them. Uh, there was a letter sent uh, this week to Health Minister Tyler Shandro uh, warning that we may see more of this medical brain drain if the government continues on its current path. And that letter was sent by our next guest. Uh, Dr. Will White is a uh, Calgary psychiatrist, works out of the Foothills Medical Center. Dr. White, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. I, I mean, for people watching from the sidelines, maybe it's difficult to understand what the issues are here. But, but from your perspective, what, what do you want people to know about this, this situation and why doctors are concerned? I thought you gave a very good summary right at the beginning. I thought I thought uh, I liked the way you said that. And I think what I would say is that uh, uh, we are all attempting to address our current economic crisis in Alberta. Like you, we have to get our financial house in order. You know, I I can't run my personal finances in a constant overspending situation. Nobody can, and neither can the government. So we we have to deal with this, and we all have to do our fair share. We all have to shoulder our share of the burden. Mm-hmm. I think the issue is that from the doctor's perspective, what I'm it's coming into focus now for me, even throughout the last week, is that it seems that our leadership in the government is telling the public one thing and telling doctors another thing. The government is focusing on telling the, the doctors are trying to tell the government, our leaders, look, some of the decisions you're making are really bad decisions that are going to have a major impact on our healthcare system that may cause severe damage for years to come. And we want to try to advise you how to not do that. How can we accomplish the goal of fiscal responsibility, maintaining our healthcare, protecting it, making it great um, within the economic responsible responsibility without making mistakes you know mm-hmm. the, and then the government responds by focusing telling the public how the doctors are wrong doctors are misinformed rather than listening to what the doctors are actually saying so so the way i look at it is like they're attempting to do surgery on the healthcare system because it needs it needs some work it needs some things done but they're attempting to do surgery on the healthcare system without a doctor in the room and so when you don't understand who, you know, doctors, nurses, people who work in the system and patients with illness who deal with the system all the time, understand how the system works. When you need to navigate the healthcare system, you don't go to your politician. You go to your doctor and go, I've got this problem. What do I do? Where do I go? Where are you going to refer me? How am I going to get there? How can you, can you smooth the way? Can you help me figure out how to navigate the system? So doctors 
are the people that, you know, I go to my doctor when I need to navigate the healthcare system. And so those people, the doctors are being, are being cut out. And when you don't understand the anatomy of how different parts of something are connected and what they do, then your attempt to do surgery can very quickly turn into butchery and dismemberment. And it's like, it's like that game Jenga. You know that right. game yes. Jenga with yeah. the tower? You pull, you start pulling pieces out and, you hope that it doesn't fall down on your turn. Uh, and that's what I see our leaders, our well-intentioned leaders who are, I, I, I want to believe that they're trying to help and preserve and sustain our public health care system for all and hopefully not turn it into a private American-style health care system. But in, in doing this, they're, they're playing Jenga with our health care system, pulling pieces out without understanding how the other pieces are connected and the and in the and what this is going to lead to is the stuff that you said so so i'm i'm listening to medical students residents who are going to graduate who are going to planning to stay in alberta who now are going where they're looking for the exit doors uh family doctors who are in the late stage of their careers going how can i retire early i can't practice in this system that the that that's being that's being in, imposed on us now with no consultation and no in, uh, no input specialists saying you know I, I i need to start looking at my options where else can i go and um you know many people but medicine is a pretty portable profession it's mm-hmm. not like i own, own a restaurant and i can't i can't leave you know you you you, you can't so anyway it, it, it's a it's a real concern it happened in the 1990s people physicians some of them left alberta some of them left the public facilities like the hospitals and the mental health clinics and you know we had a situation here at the foothills hospital where i work one of our psychiatry units unit 21 it currently has like six six psychiatrists who work on that unit in the mid-1990s they only had two they they couldn't you know people every people fled the system um and 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 it's it's partly about money i mean money like nobody goes to work for free and nobody goes to work if somebody's going to pay you $10 an hour if this other place is going to pay you $15 an hour but it's not it's not all about the money i mean it's really about trust because when the government makes a deal with you a, a legal contract and then they can turn around and say, we're going to change the law so that we can tear up that contract who else could do that anywhere in our lives you know if anybody who breaks a contract you think of that person as being unreliable dishonest lacking integrity and then you don't trust them next time you don't like how do you make another agreement with somebody who tears up a contract because then if you you think well if i if i agree to this well maybe they're just going to change it again you know i've been told i've been told that the main billing codes that i use to get paid in the hospital which is doing assessments, doing treatment, follow-up treatment, and family meetings with patients with mental health problems. Like, that's, that's the majority of what I do. I've been told that those fee codes are going to change on April 1st. That's a few weeks from now. Right. And, no, and nobody will tell us how much they're going to change by. Are they going to go down by 20%, 30%, 50%? I don't know. So is that the way that you treat you know uh, people our healthcare system is really made of people you know it's not mri machines and 
buildings and uh, you know structures. It's it's people that really are the heart and soul of the medical system. And when you treat people in a certain way and you are not honest with them and you uh, and you and you make them out to look crazy or greedy or misinformed. Um, it really leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And we, you know, we are here to help patients. That's what we, that's, that's why we went into this job because we, it's a calling, you know, we're, we're here to help patients, but we see a system being dismembered in ill-advised ways. That's going to lead to people having less time with their family doctors, fewer services available in smaller centers, overcrowding and longer waits in urban facilities, increasing doctor burnout, doctors leaving, brain drain, and leaders suggesting that maybe they think they're going to backfill with doctors from other countries, like in the 1990s. Is that what Albertans really want to sort of throw away? We've got incredible wealth of physician uh, expertise, experts. We have some of the best people in the world here in Alberta because, you know, we when, when times were fat here, you know, we could really put incentives in place to, to draw people here. And uh, and so we ended up the envy of, of every other province in, in Canada. And, uh, but, but we can, we, I don't think we need to throw that away. Uh, you know, we could, we could, our doctors want to work together with government. We want a relationship. We want to build together. We want to find solutions. We want to make the future solid and safe for Albertans. So when you get sick, when you get injured, when coronavirus comes, that you are going to be okay. You're going to be taken care of. And our leaders' words say one thing and their actions say another thing. You know, it starts to make you paranoid. You start to think maybe they want doctors to leave because they see us as just an expense that they like to get rid of. But that, that's not good for Albertans. You know, I mean, Premier Kenny on in the news yesterday in the Herald, the Don Braid's article says, you know, uh, physicians are saying they might have a 30% reduction in their compensation. How could that be possible? It's mathematically impossible. I don't understand how somebody could come to that conclusion. And then Don Braid goes on and quotes a surgeon who says, oh, here's exactly how it's possible. I'm told that I'm gonna my the certain ways that I get paid are gonna get cut. I yeah. get paid by you know and and he and it, he says thirty eight percent after April first. He estimates, but he doesn't even know. Just like I don't even know because we've not even been told. And what we have been told is that to make those changes in the billing system, that stuff has to be entered into the computer weeks and, uh, and months ahead of time, so that it's ready. And it would appear that those things were already entered into the system at the time when the government was supposedly engaging in good faith, you know, um, discussions with doctors about this. And then they and then they walked away and tore up our contract. And we're left feeling like this doesn't even feel like it was good faith. It feels like it was just a charade. And so, you know, it, it's you know, we're we're still standing here outside the door going, you know, if you open the door, like, we, we want to come to the table and help. Like we're, We went into this work to help, and we want to help uh, solve these problems. We want a, uh, an efficient, well-designed, fiscally responsible system. We all know we need to um, take, a, take a pay cut 
uh, and many people have taken terrible pay cuts, 100% pay cuts in this province. So we're not under any illusions about that. I want to read you a very short letter that I was given uh, that, w- that was written by a 80-year-old financial advisor who still works, and he writes to his MLA, I've been a conservative supporter all my life. I've supported the UCP in the last election. I want to express my great disappointment in the way the UCP is treating our doctors. I would have supported a 5% across-the-board cut to the compensation of our physicians, but this mindless butchering of our doctors is unacceptable. Does anyone at the UCP have any idea what they are doing? There's no need to use a chainsaw when a paring knife would have done the job. As things stand, I can no longer support the UCP, a very disappointed voter. That's an 80-year-old man who's been a conservative all his life, staunch conservative, supported the UCP, and he's looking at this and going, going what, what is going on here? This doesn't make any sense. So let me ask you that. How do we get things back on track? I mean, there's no undoing the decisions that have been made up until this point, but how could the government, you know, restore some good faith here and, and get things moving in the right direction? Well, how do any, let's imagine that two people have a, have a breakup or a, a breakdown or a, you know, a, a blow up. Uh, how do you, how do you heal um, relationships where trust has been damaged? Um, for one thing, I tell patients all the time, because I'm a psychiatrist, I mean, I work with people with relationship problems and relationship conflicts, and sometimes, a lot of times there's, you know, couples or whatever, and there's been some sort of a betrayal, Then I tell people all the time, the first thing is that you just can't trust somebody who's not trustworthy, so trust does have to be earned. That's a unfortunate truth. Trust has to be earned. And that's why I think it's so important that we do get things back on track somehow, because if you repeatedly add insult to injury, you can get to a point where, you know, relationships can get damaged to the point where it seems hopeless, where it seems like there is no chance for healing. I actually have faith uh, that, uh, that, that healing can happen. And, uh, but everybody has to be ready to be, you have to be honest. You have to be reliable. You have to follow through with what you say. You have to demonstrate competency. And you also have to show that self-interest is not the driving factor. You know, we don't trust people who are exuding self-interest either. So, uh, we have to show, you know, sometimes you have to give a little bit to get, and uh, and, and both sides have to be willing to do that. Um, and so, so I, I, you know, I think it, it has to do, the first thing you have to do, though, is you, you have to come back together. You have to sit down together. And then, you know, in, um, you know, I work with a lot of people with addictions, and, and people with addictions have caused a lot of damage often in their lives, by the time, in the lives of the people around them by the time they get help and get into recovery and get sober or whatever. And one of the things they have to do is they have to sit down and acknowledge, acknowledge the truth of what's happened and say, you know, and I, 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 was, I was wrong. Um, so, so when, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just speaking sort of in general terms. You asked me, how do you rebuild trust when a relationship has been damaged? Um, so, you know, I think the first thing is, is people need to come back and encounter each other and sit down and, and, and start looking at each other and talking to each other, not just talking to each other through the media, exchanging, um, exchanging letters, exchanging sound bites in the news. It needs sitting down together uh, and making a commitment that we're going to 
we're going to talk this through. If we, if, we, if we have common ground, and I believe we do have common ground. So if you have common ground, then you focus on what's your common ground. Our common ground, in my mind, should be the health and safety of Albertans for the foreseeable future going forward through a health care system that is well thought out and rational. And there has to be fiscal responsibility. There has to be balancing of budgets. There has to be responsible use of funds, uh, you know, accountability. All those things have to be there. But, you know, I feel like the, I feel like our leaders are telling the public one thing uh, and, uh, and telling doctors the other thing. And then when the doctors sort of go, hey, everybody, we got a problem here that's really going to damage your health care system going forward. Um, and then the government seems to want to change the subject or downplay it or say, you know, you guys, those, those doctors, they're, they're misinformed. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand what they're talking about. All right. Well, we got to leave it there for now. Uh, Dr. Witt, we'll see if uh, things do get back on track and uh, perhaps we'll have an opportunity to talk again, but uh, appreciate you making some time for us here today. I have great faith that things will be able to get on track. We are people who are in this province who are good at working together and working hard. And I think when we put our mind to something, we can get it done. So I can tell you that the physicians of this province are standing here ready to uh, participate in this barn raising. Well, it's probably not, almost certainly not, the end of the debate around the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, but it does appear to be the end of the legal saga around challenges to the approval of this project. The Supreme Court of Canada uh, announcing today that it is not going to hear five challenges against these uh, against this project. These are the challenges that were rejected by the Federal Court of Appeal last year, and the Supreme Court of Canada has decided to leave it at that. So it would appear to be the end of the road when it comes to legal challenges against this project. Certainly, I don't know that the opposition against it goes away, uh, but at least maybe this moves this conversation into a different phase. But joining us to talk more about where opponents of this project go from here and what the, this development today represents in a legal sense. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Margot Venton, uh, Nature Program Director with the group Eco Justice. Uh, Margot, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so, look, I mean, certainly when uh, court decisions have gone against this project, there was an expectation that the government and, and supporters of the project respect the court's decision. Is it time for opponents of this project to respect the court's decisions? Um, well, I think what, what it's time for is to ensure that we all um, hold the government accountable to its promise to ensure that if this project is developed, there are no significant adverse impacts on um, federally protected endangered species, mm-hmm. which was the which was the issue we wanted the the court to hear. Right, and it was an issue that the government was forced to go back and, and address. Uh, the yeah. courts concluded then that the government uh, sufficiently did so. Um, the, does this put an end though to any any further legal challenges on this front? So just one point of clarification, no court has confirmed that the government did actually satisfy the law, the legal requirements of the Species at Risk Act. What they what they said is they were not going to hear the case. Um, and that was what our appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada was seeking, was, was, a, was a court to review um, the question, did Canada comply with the requirements of the Species at Risk Act? So that question is actually unanswered. Um, 
and and will remain unanswered because there isn't anywhere to go from the Supreme Court. Well, is it unanswered? I mean, isn't the Supreme Court essentially then deferring to the Federal Court of Appeal on this? Uh, but the Federal Court of Appeal didn't hear the case either. Um, so the Federal Court, so the first time this case went to the Federal Court of Appeal, the Federal Court of Appeal found that the court, that the government hadn't complied with the Species at Risk Act and made them go back and reconsider um, the environmental impacts of the marine shipping portion of the of the project, the tankers. Um, when they reapproved the project, several groups, um, including our clients, Raincoast Conservation Foundation and the Living Ocean Society, uh, were still of the opinion that they hadn't complied with the law, and they asked the Court of Appeal to hear that case. The Court of Appeal declined and said, we're not going to hear that case again because it's already been heard once. And therefore... Um, we sought leave to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said we're not going to hear it either, okay. offering no reasons as to why. You know, the Supreme Court doesn't give reasons on right, leave, which is to typical, it. as you say. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, with regard to to the Species at Risk Act, uh, the, the concern about the the increase in tanker traffic connected to this project. Um, t- talk a bit about then what what your concerns are. So. The National Energy Board, when they reviewed the project initially and again during the reconsideration, found that if the project goes ahead, um, it will, there will be significant adverse impacts on the marine environment. Um, in particular, they found the increase in tanker traffic will further jeopardize the survival of the southern resident killer whale. That's a population whose critical habitat is actually transected by the pipeline route. Um, and then they also noted the risk of a catastrophic oil spill and the impact that, that either of those events, impacts on killer whales and, and from an oil spill, would have on indigenous use of, of killer whales and traditional other, other aspects of the marine environment. So um, that is the big concern factually on the ground. The Species at Risk Act is supposed to require um, measures to be in place to avoid those impacts um, or to mitigate the impacts. And our concern is that Canada simply committed to ensuring there would be no impacts, but they didn't actually um, identify measures which have been shown to, to effectively work to avoid impacts. And that was the question we wanted the court to consider. Right. And can you clarify this? Because my understanding is that that when you talk about the impact of tanker traffic, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. specific to the type of, of vessel, that, that really any kind of additional shipping traffic does present these challenges. And when it comes to uh, these, these ports in the Lower Mainland, or even those in Washington State, there, there was a lot of shipping traffic. So how does adding one more per day change what is already the, the, the status quo that we have? So... If you look at the findings of the National Energy Board, what they found was, and this is based on um, the scientific evidence that was presented to them, effectively the problem is the, the, the critical habitat is already too loud. So we have an existing problem. Almost 90% of the communication space um, that whales need to survive, they, use, they, they rely on their sense of hearing to hunt, to communicate with one each other, with one another, to find mates, basically all of their life processes, 90% of that base is already taken up in during busy shipping times. And so even though it may not seem like a huge increase to add a, another tanker every day in critical habitat, it's actually, because of the existing situation, enough to put those whales past the tipping point. Essentially, they've passed that tipping point already. So what would you like to see the government do then? If it uh, means strengthening the Species at Risk Act or, or taking other steps, what could be done, in your view, to mitigate some of this? Well, 
we have to answer the question, how do we reduce ocean noise in the Salish Sea if we want there to be um, killer whales? That's just basically what needs to happen. And therefore, and we say that the, the Species at Risk Act requires the government to do that. The government has, in a very vague way, committed to do this, to, to offset, they say, the impacts of the project. Um, and and what, we, what has to happen now um, is that, you know, they, they need to be held to that promise. I think one of the challenges is there's not a lot of great, there's, there's not a lot of examples globally of situations in which ocean noise has been effectively reduced. We've got some ideas about how that might be able to happen, um, but it's uh, but not a lot of examples of thing of where that has been successfully those those mitigation measures have been successfully implemented. Right, and also look, I mean, this, this is obviously not just a Canadian issue. I mean, our Species at Risk Act doesn't apply to to the U.S. Doesn't apply to uh, traffic coming uh, in and out of Washington State or tanker traffic coming from Alaska down to Washington State. I mean, how do we factor that in? Well, that's a, it's one of the things that makes this all the more challenging. But the, the killer whales are actually um, listed as an endangered species in the United States. Um, and the United States, in particular, the state of Washington, has taken some um, strong action to try. They have a, a task force on killer whales. They are trying to implement measures to reduce acoustic disturbance um, from whale watching and other sources of traffic, traffic within their jurisdiction. But this issue of international traffic is... To, is to a certain extent a transboundary problem, um, and one which we say should really be solved before we make it any worse. So, what is your focus now, uh, given that the courts have uh, put this matter to rest? Where do you go from here? Well, obviously, our clients in particular need to, to consider um, what happens next. But certainly, we will be watching to see whether the promise that is set out in the order and council to offset the impacts of this project. Um, the one they colloquially refer to as more than mitigating the impacts of Trans Mountain, um, that, the, that that action is actually taken. There, there can't be, um, on the day that tankers start to sail, the absence of a mitigation strategy, or they will be in violation of Canadian law. All right. Margo, appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. All right. Thanks very much. All right. That's uh, Margot Venton with the group Eco Justice. Uh, the reaction to the Supreme Court decision and what their focus is going to be going forward. I, I don't know that they're waving the white flag necessarily, but you, you certainly get the sense maybe that they're accepting that this is probably going ahead and how they intend to focus on these areas they say are a priority. Uh, look, I mean, uh, you know, folks are certainly concerned about killer whales. That's, that's not exclusive to eco-justice or their allies. Uh, we've obviously got, as she says, a considerable amount uh, of shipping traffic, not just in the lower mainland, but, of course, uh, on the American side of things as well. Now, you often hear uh, opponents of the Trans Mountain Pipeline talk about, you know, a, a massive, a 700% increase in tanker traffic, which I suppose, strictly speaking, is true. Essentially, what we would expect under this project, that there would be an increase in tanker traffic. We'd go from about one a month uh, to one a day. So it, I suppose in percentages, it represents a big increase. But in the grand scheme of things, we're talking about one a day compared to all of the other shipping traffic. And it is, uh, look, she mentioned the issue of an oil spill, and certainly that's something that we need to guard against, and that's part of the conditions uh, around this project. 
But when it comes to the ships themselves, it's about the noise of shipping traffic. It's not about anything specific to tankers. It's about the noise. And that's already an issue. I suppose adding one more per day adds a little bit to that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.